Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello, and welcome to another special episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. Trey, are you as excited about this episode as I am? Yes, I was thinking about it at work all day today. So we decided that we are going to do an episode today about Duran Duran in 1985. And there were a couple notable things that happened in 85, including two side projects that we're going to talk about. But Trey, as you and I were researching this, we discovered... But to really understand what took place with Duran Duran in 85, we have to go back to 1984. A lot of these side projects and other things really took root the year before. Well, we should also note that uh, 84 was a freaking banner year for the band. They, it was definitely the peak of their popularity. They had, did Reflex hit number one or was it just number two? That went to number one. And the boys appeared on the cover of the February 1984 issue of Rolling Stone magazine with the headline, The Fab Five. I think that's how I found out about the tour. Was Rolling Stone magazine? I think the dates and all were there, I think. I was trying to find it last night. Now, the tour was filmed for Arena at Absurd Notion, which was a video release you're laughing. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of a weird sci-fi concert film fusion. I probably lost it a thousand times. It's kind of bizarre. So it, it, the film's villain is the evil Dr. Duran Duran, played by Milo O'Shea. And that's the same role he played in the Jane Fonda film Barbarella. And that, as fans know, is where Duran Duran got their name. So it's really an interesting video. It combines the live performances, which are fantastic, with some really kind of weird sci-fi elements. There's members of the audience being abducted, fighting uh, weird like sci-fi creatures and stuff. And actually, there is a little bit of a cameo of a very young Jennifer Connelly at one point in the video as she walks across the stage. My parents got me the home video okay. for my 15th birthday, and uh, I thought it was unusual, but I loved it. I probably, I must have watched that thing a thousand times that summer. I would just have it on in the background, be playing games on my Commodore 64 or what have you, just have it playing. Actually, I think I recorded the audio tape at one point. I liked it better than the Arena album. Really? What did you like better about it? I don't know. I just thought it was cool with all the attic speaking bits and stuff in it. You know, it was just, okay. just made a good listen. I was weird like that. It's probably why I love podcasts as an, <laughs> as an adult. No Milo O'Shea here, though. No. So from this time period, we have a recording that we're going to play. This is one of my favorites, New Religion. And this was recorded live in L.A. at the Forum on February 9th of 1984. 
They took a little short, short, short intermission from touring to appear at the 26th Annual Grammy Awards. This was February 28, 1984. They won Best Video Short Form for Girls on Film and Hungry Like the Wolf and Best Video Album for their compilation Duran Duran. I don't know that I was aware of that at the time. Oh, I was. <laughs> I didn't watch the Grammys. I could have cared less about it. I was glued to it. it I think that maybe around this time period was the first time where artists that I knew and loved were actually honored on the Grammys. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't start in 84. It started a few years earlier than that. But uh, yeah, no, I was glued to my screen. 84 was a year Michael Jackson basically swept it like that. Correct. Okay, I thought you so. Are correct, yeah. I didn't care for him back then. I just remember the next day, Schooler Buddy was carrying on about it. I was like, so what? Yeah, I think by that point I was already over him. I mean, I was really into him in like 82. But in March and April of 1984, the Duran Duran boys continued on their North American tour. And they included a date in Columbia, South Carolina, which, Trey, I believe you attended, did you not? I very much did. It was on a Friday. Okay, tell us. I didn't know I was going to this to the week of the concert. I'm not even really sure at the beginning of the week that I knew Duran Duran was playing 40 minutes away from me in just a few days. That was my birthday present. My birthday's in April. All my relatives chipped in and got the tickets for me and gave me money to buy stuff to show with. And a, a cousin of mine took me to the concert and I, I had no idea what I was walking into. Okay. <laughs> you tell. There, there were so many screaming girls outside of the, uh, was it the Carolina Coliseum? And there were so many screaming. We got there about 4.30 in the afternoon, and there were thousands of chicks at the doors just going bonkers already. And there was some radio DJ, I guess, from some Columbia, South Carolina station out there just getting them fired up. They were throwing out posters and shirts and stuff and getting, you know, getting everybody excited. It was just a really surreal experience for me. I was, I was a bump shy turning 14 and seeing all those girls was just yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one thing about this concert is that I did not really expect them to be so fantastic live. You know, I had no idea there was going to be a video screen and all the, all the stuff they had going on. It just blew me out of the freaking water. You know, that's commonplace today. 1984, that was unheard of. You know, the set list was pretty cool. There was a couple of deads in it. They played my own way, and that didn't really, really go over well live. Because when they played the reflex, the place just fucking erupted. Really? Yes. Interesting. I, 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 you know, the standout for me of the night was Careless Memories. 
I was not expecting them to rock that up the way they did. And Amy just really took the spotlight. It, it was unbelievable. This, you know, if you've all seen the Blue Sing, is it Sing Blue Silver documentary? Or is it just mm-hmm. Blue Silver? There's footage from the show. And probably, I can't remember exactly where the show happened. The power went down for about 10 or 15 minutes and they had to leave the stage. Do we know why? I, I have no clue. I don't think it even says in the documentary. I tried, tried to find it all night last night, watch it again. Uh, no avail. But uh, the crowd went sour. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, I bet. They kept having people come out of us. I think even what was our manager? He came out there, I'm pretty sure it was him, and said, Look, we're going to finish the show. If it's an hour, we'll finish the show. If it's, don't worry, we're good. they're going to finish playing the concert for you. About 10 minutes later, it came back on and they came back out. Kind of made another grand entrance, really. Oh, yeah. It's, it's dark again, and, you know, and they layered out. And the scream of the teenage girls. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I've I, I never seen so many pairs of female panties and bras in one place in my life. I mean, they, they, they had a guy running out the entire concert, just grabbing it, getting it out. I guess they're the band members didn't trip on it. it right, right. I don't. I remember my, my cousin was like, did they just bring the stuff in their purse? Or where is all this coming from? <laughs> no, honey. <laughs> and they were, you know. I don't want to sound like some kind of pervert, but that's where I saw my first boobs that weren't on a TV or in a magazine because chicks were flashing. <laughs> it was it was just absolute insanity. Something else is the whole show. The roar never died. You know, the the roar of the girls. At most concerts, when they play a song, the crowd will shut up. They kept screaming the whole entire show. I know that the guys had said that in a few interviews from this time where it was insane because they couldn't hear themselves that the the teenage girls were so loud. They're they're not lying. So you had mentioned that Andy just shredded it on careless memories. Good God. Now, we were not able to find a recording from that South Carolina show, but we do have the live release from Arena careless memories let's listen to a little bit of it so soon just after you're gone my sense is sharp but it always takes so damn long before I feel how much my eyes have darkened. Fear things a plane of gum smoke. Drifting in our room. <laughs> so easy to disturb with a thought, with a whisper. With a gas memory. With a gas memory. I want to say one more thing about it when we come back. I, I was really disappointed in the merch because it was all very cheap. Yeah. I wonder why that might be. I don't know. I brought I bought two to three different shirts, a tour program, and a set of buttons. None of the shirts made it through the summer. Oh, that sucks. And I remember my mom, um, like, these guys make all this money. They get by some. 
There's stuff printed on some quality t-shirts. Yeah, that sucks. Of course, now you'd be paying 45 bucks for a t-shirt. I think they were... The t-shirts were twelve fifty, and I got the three-quarter length sleeve, the baseball jersey. Have you ever seen one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got one of those. I think that was $21. Okay. So, Trey, you had mentioned earlier the reflex, and it was actually right around this time, shortly after you saw them live, April 16th, 1984, that they released their single, The Reflex. They brought in Nile Rodgers, legendary guitarist, musician, producer from the band Chic. They had heard what he did for In Excess on their song Original Sin, and they knew that The Reflex was missing something. And the album version was kind of a dud. So Niall really funkified it. He mixed it up and really made it something amazing. So the single that we heard on the radio was the Niall Rogers remix, if you will. And that went to number one. After the success of The Reflex, in July 1984, Duran Duran went back into the studio in West London with Niall to record the single The Wild Boys. And this would eventually be released on October 26th of 1984. I remember being at the store the day that came out, get the 12-inch single, the 45, and I think there was some cassette thing I got, too, of it. I got Arena for Christmas that year, and I, yes, yes, and I mean, it was, it, it was really, really good. I mean, you mentioned, you know, going back again to this tour, how fantastic they sounded live, and the thing I really appreciated is that you really hear the rock and roll edge in the live performances, Andy just shreds it, you know, it re- and the tempo's a little bit faster than on the studio recordings. I mean, this, this is to me why they deserved their place in the rock and roll hall of fame. The only thing disappointment in arena with me was, is the track selection could have been a little 
They could have thrown in four or five more songs on there. Had it been be spectacular. It was great. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Did you have the verse? I got the vinyl book. Did you have that? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, the boys are coming off their amazing sellout tour, but some cracks were starting to appear. You get it? I just played Cracks of the Pavement. Yeah. Cracks, yeah. I think you're desperate you were referring. Get it? Okay, all right. All they right. actually played that live, and that wasn't that great either. No. Uh-huh. It now brings us to 85. So, Trey, do you want to talk about Save a Prayer? Yeah, I actually purchased this, and I didn't get the picture sleeve version. I, I was just in one of those, you know, old, I think it was gold plain sleeves. I was confused by it, too. I didn't understand why this was being put out. It's a little before I knew more about records and how all that kind of stuff really worked. But the, were, they, were they playing the video on MTV? Yes, they were. Was it the version where you dedicated it to uh, the R&B singer that got shot and killed by a son? Oh, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, was it that version they were playing? You know, I don't remember. I mean, I remember seeing both the original video and then the live arena version see that's the only version i do i didn't i, I went till years later that i saw the, the marvin gay version i guess we should call it well in january of 85 what they released was an american remix and we talked about in our episode about rio how they tended to remix things for an american market so rio came out in 1982 interesting mm. that they decided to re-release Save a Prayer as a single in 85. And it actually turned out to be a smart move because it peaked at number 16 in the U.S. in March of 85. I was going to say, sales were a little sluggish for Arena in the U.S. And they were trying to hype it up. So this might have been a way to... That's exactly what they were doing. I gotcha. Okay, well, this is the U.S. single version of Save a Prayer. i 
after their American tour wrapped up and the boys recorded the Wild Boys, John Taylor, the bassist, happened to find himself at a party thrown by Michael Caine. And there he met... Well, what's so funny? Just John Taylor at a party at Michael Caine's house. It's just, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall? What other kind of people do you think were there? Right. Can well, what imagine? A, one of the people that was there was Cubby Broccoli, who yes. was the producer of the James Bond films. And this meeting actually would prove to be quite fortuitous. John supposedly actually asked Cubby Broccoli... What are you going to have a decent James Bond theme song? And Cubby Broccoli supposedly responded, well, when are you going to record one for me? I've always heard John was pretty, pretty well trashed and said it as a joke and didn't expect him to go, well, all right, do it. We'll put it in there. There you go. So that's how this collaboration came about. So they were working with John Barry, the composer who's composed a lot of the James Bond soundtracks and supposedly nick rhodes of duran duran and john barry were butting heads a lot nick's nickname in the band is the controller and there is a reason for this (laughs) they did however manage to put something together the single by duran duran a view to a kill the james bond theme that they worked so hard on came out on may 6 1985 This is one of their best songs. You think so? Out of everything. I mean, this is one of their best songs. It is very, very good. And to date, it is the only James Bond theme song to go to number one in the U.S. Yep. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Did Nick wrote most of the music, did he? Well, this is where he and John Barry were fighting with each other a lot. Yeah. And I think John Barry was bringing in some strings and stuff. It's not exactly clear to me. How much was John and how much was Nick? It's my understanding that they actually had to bring in Bernard Edwards, who was uh, Tony Thompson's bandmate in Chic, and actually had Bernard Edwards kind of be the peacekeeper between Nick and John Barry, which I thought was very interesting. I had the, again, got the 45, 12-inch single. I think I had a promotional poster for this too that somebody that worked in a record store gave to me one day yeah this is a great song and that remix version is fantastic most people don't know, know about it I don't think I know about the remix version I had the 45 
It runs about six minutes. Give it a listen one day. It's it's not so much like one of their off-the-wall dance remixes. It's really just an extended version of a song, but it kicks ass. Okay, I'll check it out. And, of course, the movie of View to a Kill is notable because it starred Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. Grace, yeah. There was actually a little bit of a connection where the band met Grace Jones through the movie, and uh, we're going to hear more about Grace Jones in a little bit. Didn't John date Did he, for a while? You know, that would not surprise me, because John, John dated everybody. I didn't know that he dated Grace Jones. I know that he did date Jody Watley. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, the song Looking for a New Love was about it was about John Taylor. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Words yeah. every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He got around. Anyway. Next we have July 13th, 1985. And Trey, you remember what happened on that day, right? It was Live Aid. Yes. And Simon's infamous bad note. Yes, so Duran Duran performed at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia as part of Live Aid. They played four songs together, and yes, as you mentioned, his voice kind of cracked on the high note on A View to a Kill, which got a lot of attention from the tabloids. I actually kind of felt bad for the guy, because that is a hard note to hit. You know, I did not know about that until the dawn of YouTube. And there's a video on YouTube, and it says uh, Simon's voice cracks, Live Aid. Oh, I watched it live. I, I sat through all the other bands to be able to watch Duran Duran. Again, you got the side, couldn't see it now. You know, we didn't have MTV yet. And it was an event. It was a day-long event. We yeah. were camped out. We were watching the whole thing. That Live Aid show was the final time that the five original yep. members of Duran Duran would publicly perform together until 2003. After that show, the tensions boiled over. They weren't even speaking to each other backstage. It was really like five just complete strangers almost. It was that bad. I wonder how Nick was acting. Oh, I'm sure Nick was probably in full-blown controller mode. Nick strikes me as someone probably a pretty cool guy, but can be a real jerk when he, you know, you rub him the wrong way. And Nick and Andy were always at each other's throats. So, yeah. So that, although fans didn't realize it as we watched it, that would be the end of Duran Duran as we knew it. Now, that's not the end of Duran Duran altogether. Just there'd be some major changes after this. Now, there was another major incident in 85 that I think was the final nail in the coffin for the original five. And that was August 11th, 1985. Simon LeBon was in a yacht race. He was competing in the 600-mile fast net race off the south coast of Britain. He was in a 78-foot maxi yacht called Drum, and the boat capsized, and he very nearly died. There's interview footage. You can find this on YouTube where he's talking about, because he'd been asleep. The, the boat capsized at night. He was asleep, and when he woke up, he was underwater. The boat was on top of him. He had a little bit of an air pocket so he and the other crew could breathe, but he was, like, just surrounded by, like, an oil slick. It was very, very tense. The rest of the band, I think, was very angry with him that he would take this kind of a risk. 
because he was the face of the band and the front man of the band. And if something had happened and he had died, that would have been the end of Duran Duran. So there was a lot of tension there as well. And I think Andy in particular was very angry with Simon for taking that kind of a risk. Now, I have an interesting addition to all of this. And I, sure. Many, to- many times on this show, I've said I didn't have MTV. We didn't have MTV on our cable. This was a very week that we got MTV on cable five. And I remember the day this happened. MTV went over the top with it. Because I think at first they suspected he might be dead, right? Possibly. I, I Looking back at it, you know, 40-odd years later, or 30, what, 38 years later, I don't remember them saying that, but it's possible. Uh, they, just, may, they may have been speculating that. I don't know. I just remember there was some footage of the boat sitting there capsized. I guess they sent a helicopter out. They kept showing that over and yeah. over and saying, you know, Duran Duran singer, Simon the Bob, you know, tragic accident or something along that lines. Right. So that was, that was but really my intro to TV, really, and how all that, you know, music news and all that sort of stuff worked. Gotcha. But things were starting to go off in a little bit of a different direction. So sometime in the fall of 1984, John Taylor happened to be on a flight with singer Robert Palmer. Now, if you don't know who Robert Palmer is, he's a legendary blue-eyed soul singer. Uh, He did a song called Bad Case of Loving You that I remember just rocking out to in the mid-70s. So he's been around. He's like old school. John Taylor mentioned to Robert Palmer that he and Andy Taylor, the guitarist, were working on a new project with Tony Thompson, who was the drummer of the band Chic. And he asked Robert Palmer if he'd like to be involved. The original plan was for them to have a rotating lineup of like guest lead singers. John Taylor for a while was dating B.B. Buell, who's like the legendary rock groupie, you know, Liv Tyler's mother. There was a plan to have her sing lead vocals on one song. Wasn't she both loads older than though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. That's <laughs> something um, I would do. They were going to have Mick Jagger sing vocals on another. But the whole idea behind this project was for them to get back to their rock and roll roots, especially Andy. Andy Taylor is a rock and roll guitarist through and through. And I think he was really feeling like he couldn't play his own style of music with Duran Duran. He's a fantastically underrated guitarist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just unbelievably. So Andy and John Taylor had booked some time in the recording studio with Tony Thompson. They started recording an album, and this was the legendary record studio, The Power Station. Yep. Hence the name of their band. They decided to call their band The Power Station. Now, supposedly during this time, John and Andy ran up a $450,000 hotel bill. On alcohol? I'm sure that was a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. How did did they pay that or did their management pay it? I don't know. I don't know. When they brought Robert Palmer into the studio to do vocals on the song Communication, he nailed it. So much so that they changed their plan and they decided Robert Palmer was going to be their permanent lead singer.
in February, specifically February 16th, 1985, the power station performed live on SNL. Now, this is the only time that Robert Palmer performed live with the original lineup. I actually saw that. Kind of like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Did you recognize Andy? And of course. That's why I was like, what the hell is going on? I had no, I, no clue power station. Uh-huh. Like I said a million times on the show, remember, I had no MTV or nothing and had no music news or nothing. So I was like, what in the world? Zorks. Yeah. You know, I thought Duran Duran had broken up and they just made a new band. I think a lot of people thought that yeah. because the, the, uh, it was pretty well known that there were some fractures forming in the band. I also had no idea of that either. But, well, if you if you read any of the music magazines, you'd kind of get that indication, I think. I was nope. buying, like, star hits. And they didn't, okay. You know. Well, March 4th, 1985, they released their first single as the power station, Some Like It Hot. song oh it's fantastic oh it's fantastic yeah tony thompson's drums oh my gosh there's Mm -hmm. like 30 seconds in the very beginning that is nothing but him banging on the drums and it is it is fire and john doing that thing on his bass at yes yes robert palmer actually wrote the lyrics for this one this is like their signature song, mm-hmm. right? I think this is the one song that if you mention the power station, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. The video was notable because it included trans model Tula. She's trans? She is trans, yes. She had a very brief appearance in a James Bond movie in the early 80s. She was a model, and um, I think at the time, not a lot of people knew that she was trans. I, there's... Uh... So I must have was, forgotten if I knew this before. But it's yeah. Not, don't get me wrong out there, audience land. So I thought it was, particularly in 85, a very avant-garde, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's unheard of that day. Yes, yes. For for the power station to be, you know, including a, a trans woman. And yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. Way ahead, Yeah, way ahead of their time. Incidentally, she eventually became a very, very prominent activist for trans rights in the European Union. So um, so I thought that was really cool. And then March 25th of 85, the album, The Power Station, was finally released. <laughs> I'm sure you had this one, Trey. Oh, yeah. And what did you think of it? I liked it. I loved it back there. Like I told you the other week, I sat down and listened to it one night. 
I'd say about half of it holds up well in this day and age. Right. What do you think? Well, I didn't own this one. My sister did. And I did listen to it quite a bit. And there were, I think, two, maybe three songs that I really, really loved. The rest of it I could kind of take or leave it. But I think it was a really good outlet for John and Andy. Mm -hmm. I think they really needed this kind of a side project. They needed to work with other people. They needed to work with Tony Thompson. They needed to work with Robert Palmer. And they needed to get out this like hard rock edge that they had that really they had to kind of stifle a little bit in Duran Duran. Speaking of rock and roll, their next single was released on April 29th, 1985, and it was a cover of the T-Rex classic, Get It On, Bang A Gong. love this one i love it just from the very beginning where it kind of almost sounds like somebody almost like tuning a dial on a radio or something you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a really really good cover i had no idea it was a cover until years later really mm-hmm. hmm. well it did reach number nine in the usa you know interestingly enough trey this was the song that bb buell was supposed to do the vocal yeah I don't yeah. think that would have came out too great. They they did the right thing and let Robert Palmer do it all. Absolutely. I, I think John and BB probably were broken up by this point anyway. It was a very, very short-lived romance. But now we're coming up to June of 85, and the power station was about to begin a U.S. tour. However, Robert Palmer unexpectedly quit the band and decided to record instead a solo album called Riptide. I, I think... He got the bug. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. recording with these guys. Well, thinking... his management saw him saw a chance for them to get back, you know, have some more hits. Mm-hmm. Convinced them into doing it. I don't think he took that much convincing. He he didn't seem like he was a big fan of performing live with the band anyway. Now, there must not have been too much bad blood between the Power Station band members because Andy Taylor and Tony Thompson both played on Riptide. As a matter of fact, Addicted to Love, that screeching guitar solo, Mm -hmm. that's Andy Taylor. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. So here they are. They're getting ready to go on a tour. They have no singer. So they tapped Michael Desparas to be the new lead singer for the tour. I actually know a girl that got to go see him in Atlanta. 
she said that Michael does bars was not that great with him. No. Yeah. Well, imagine his position, though. Imagine the crowd is expecting to see Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer is known for these songs, recorded these songs, and at the last minute, oh, guess what? You're right Yeah. I, I I don't think she knew, actually, going into the show that Robert Palmer was going to be there. wasn't going to be there. Another thing she said was disappointing because they only played about eight songs, but it was, you know, you paid full concert ticket price to see them and some other band, mm-hmm. but it was very short. Yeah, that's always disappointing. Michael Despars happened to be friends with an actor named Don Johnson. Don Johnson, as we know, in 1985, was the star of Miami Vice. Yes. So, the power station was invited to appear on Miami Vice on October 4th, 1985. I remember watching this well. I do, too. And, you know, to this day, I don't really understand how they fit into the plot of that particular episode, but... They were friendly with a drug dealer or something. They They were helping Crockett and Tubbs out. And they did perform, I think, two songs. Yes. I don't know if they actually performed them, but it showed them Miami. Well, if anybody could connect Crockett and Tubbs to a drug dealer in Miami in 1985, (laughs) it would be John Taylor and Andy Taylor. So, Andy wasn't as bad as John, was he? No, John John was in, in really in a bad way. Yeah. While the power station was getting ready to tour... April through June, April, May, and June of 85, Nick Rhodes and Simon LeBon went back into the studio on their own to begin their own side project that would become Arcadia. Roger Taylor, the drummer from Duran Duran, was actually affiliated with both side projects, although less so with the power station, but he actually was a full-fledged member of Arcadia. It wasn't just Simon and Nick. It was also Roger. I was going to say, I had the posters that he appeared on. So, really, Duran Duran kind of split right down the middle at this point. Yep. One thing I've always noticed, the most of the drums on the Arcadia album sound like a drum machine. So, I've often wondered if Roger actually played on it. And I've heard other people ponder the same thing. Interesting. Interesting. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. They had so many guest artists on this album, although at times I think the guest artists may be overshown. Uh, Simon and Nick a little bit. Sting was on the album. Mm-hmm. David Gilmore was on the album. Mm-hmm. Grace Jones, two songs, Election Day, and uh, another one we're going to listen to in a little bit, The Flame. So in October of 1985, Arcadia released their first single called Election Day with Grace Jones on guest vocals, and it went to number six on the U.S. charts.
This had me in hello. Oh my gosh, yes. November 18th, 1985, which was just a few days after my 12th birthday, So Red the Rose by Arcadia was released. And it is still to this day one of my favorite albums of all yeah. time. Had to have it. Yes. This I still, still love this album. Me too. I still listen to it all the time. I mean, a friend said once, uh, this is the best Duran Duran album that Duran Duran never did. Yeah, I've heard other people say that. Yeah. I oh, very, very fond, fond memories of listening to this album when it came out. Oh, yeah, me too. I just adored it. Yes. I, you know, I should note here, this is a month I discovered God, too, via The Cure. Okay. So, you know, and I, I think this album has a very gothy feel of book to it. It really does. And even in, in the music videos, Simon and yeah. Nick both are kind of a little bit gothed out. They both have black hair, gorgeous black hair. They look there's amazing. no way. I've always said there's no way they were looking at the Cure and like Bauhaus and going, you know, we love to do something like that. It's certainly possible. Their second single off of the album was Goodbye is Forever. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. I think is probably my favorite song on the album. It is so haunting. It is so good. The video, there, there's a common theme uh, between this one and the video for the Wild Boys that came out earlier. And, and Trey, I believe I've told you this story before because, as you know, I was introducing my husband to a lot of these acts because he grew up outside of the United States, wasn't familiar with Duran Duran, wasn't familiar with Arcadia. So I showed him the video for the Wild Boys, you know, where they have Simon LeBond tied up to the windmill and spun around the windmill. And then we were watching the video for this song, Goodbye is Forever. It's really interesting because it, it's kind of got Simon and Nick being a little bit, almost like they're somehow suspended between time. Uh -huh. And there's a theme of time, but it's also almost like a carnival ride in some places. But anyway, there's one scene where Simon is on the face of a clock and being spun around. Yeah. And my my husband goes, what is with this guy that he likes to be tied up and spun around? Is that his thing? And I'm just like, okay, sure, whatever he's into. The third single off of the album, which also had a fun music video, yes. was called The Flame.
So this video, it's it's very tongue in cheek. It's kind of poking fun, I think, at like old Agatha Christie type mysteries. Yeah. Where Simon is really kind of stumbling through things where he's not even aware of the fact that people are trying to kill him and he's just just missing all of these assassination attempts. Which some people have speculated is like a commentary on how he just missed dying on oh, yeah. the yacht accident. Yeah. And of course there's a cameo in the video. Don Taylor. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some actress or actor in it too. Very possibly. Bad, Very, my memory going no, again. I think you're right. I think the guy that played the butler mm-hmm. might have been a big name actor, but uh, at least in Britain, no, nobody I would know. But mm-hmm. uh, John Taylor had a cameo in the video for The Flame where he kind of pops out of a closet with a contract that he's trying to get Nick to sign. And this was humorous because the boys of Duran Duran were fighting over their contract. Andy wanted to be let out. And they were talking about how they were going to move forward with what would become the next Duran Duran album. They're not afraid to poke fun at themselves, which I appreciated. Yeah. So, arguably, Arcadia, So Red the Rose, the most underrated album of the 80s, bar none. I I can't believe it's not more well known. It's such a wonderful album. And I'm so disappointed that they didn't actually do more because the Power Station did go on to record a second album with Michael Disparis, but Arcadia, one and done. And that's what they meant. Isn't I could have swore I read Big Save Box that, you know, they only intended for it to be that one time and that was it. Just something to bridge time. Well, and then Nick kind of went off a few years later with Warren Cucurillo and created TV Mania, which was another side project that was very experimental. Trey, that is bringing us to the end of 1985. So we had a little bit of a deep dive there with Duran Duran and their side projects and their soundtracks near drownings it was a crazy crazy year indeed it was a fantastic year for fans of Duran Duran it was but it was also kind of a sad year for fans because we weren't sure what was going on but we knew that the fact that these bands these two side projects were going in different directions didn't bode well for the original five I think it was very clear that the entire band was coming back yeah But I also think that these side projects were very good because they did allow the band to kind of recharge. Yeah. And when when they came back in 86, which I'm sure we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, they were ready to explore a new sound and uh, new musical avenues. And it worked very well. It did. So, Trey, I guess in two weeks when we come back, we're going to start talking about 86, yeah? Indeed we are. Thank you again for listening. Letting us, letting us talk about, letting us talk about Duran Duran again. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. And we we clearly love Duran Duran here. And we love our listeners. So thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.